0: Welcome back to Bad on Paper podcast. I'm Becca Freeman,
1: and I'm Grace Atwood. And did you today, forget who you were? I I almost did. No, I'm. <laughs> we'll talk about my low and poor Grace is sick. I've got strep throat. I, I um the fever just set in. I'm starting to sweat through my clothes. But we're doing this, we just did a great interview with Anne Helen Peterson, who is somebody that Becca and I both admire so much. We finished the interview. She's going to and-
0: explain to us why we are all so fucking burnt out.
1: Yes, so it's a great episode. But before we get into the episode, this episode is sponsored by the makers of our all-time favorite pillow, Night. We are sharing some pretty major news from the brand. Just to give you a little hint, it's very colorful news, and we'll get to that later in the episode. But don't forget, you can use nightbop BOP for 20% off everything at discoverknight.com.
0: So Grace, I want to know your high. I know you're sick, but we might be living your high. Your cat is so affectionate right now. He's on your lap. He just jumped over there. He's been showing off the whole time we've been recording. Like, I don't know if that's your high, but it's like it's up there.
1: Okay, so it's not my high, but I will say that he's actually like a pretty good cat when you're sick. Like he kind of picks up on the vibe. Maybe I'm like extra warm, so I'm like Mm. more cozy to him. But he's being great. My high is that I was in L.A. over the weekend, which is always a high. But we had the most epic food day like of my whole life. We started at Grand Central Market where you saw this. It was the
0: lobster roll. I want to know all about this lobster roll.
1: So we went to this restaurant and we... I keep forgetting the name of the restaurant, but it's in my LA highlights if you're in LA and you want to refer to those on my Instagram page. But we had this lobster roll and I was going to get this like cold soba noodle salad that sounded good. And I just asked the server, I was like, what are your favorite things on the menu? And he's like, the Thai lobster roll. Duh. So I was like, I'll take one of those. And it's, oh my God. The bread that it was served on was like that like crusty like French bread. Ooh like a banh mi. Yes exactly. The lobster was meat was like cooked Thai style in like a coconut milk broth with like all sorts of veggies and like an Asian coleslaw. It was so good. I mean you and I both love a, a lobster roll but this was I, I don't want to say it's the best lobster roll I've ever had because that's rude to New England lobster rolls and therefore rude to my heritage but it Was incredible. I've never had anything like it. It was just wonderful.
0: I tend to be a purist when it comes to lobster rolls, but I saw you post this on Instagram and I immediately was very interested.
1: I am too. Like, I don't even want the butter kind of lobster roll. I want the classic New England style lobster roll that I like grew up with on Cape Cod. So, having, but this was just something special and delicious and unique. But then we did some other things downtown and like had a whole little agenda. Then we went to Little Tokyo for dinner. Holy shit. I think that the sushi we had in the place that we went to, I do remember the name of this. It was called Sushi general G-E-N. Honestly, Beckett, it was better than Nobu. So like the quality of the fish. It was epic. And I probably if I'm not from L.A., I, I'd never been to Little Tokyo. So I probably sound like such an idiot to somebody who, who's from L.A. and goes there all the time. But It was $45 for a plate of Nigeria style sushi. And like, there was so much. And I mean, the the Toro, it was the best Toro I've ever eaten. It came with this little Toro scallion roll. It was not fancy. Like they had one bottle of red wine that like wasn't a very good bottle, but it was all just about the fish. And I I told my boyfriend, I'm like, well, you know that now I'm going to want to come downtown and go to Little Tokyo every night. And it's like a hike, you know, and LA is so spread out and that's like, Really, really far from where he lives, but it was incredible.
0: Oh, that sounds so good. I want both of those things.
1: I'm like still thinking about both of them. What is your high?
0: My high is that I am going on another vacation tomorrow. So I have an annual girls' trip that I go on with some of my friends from college. And obviously, last year it got canceled because of COVID, and we go to my favorite. One of my favorite places in the whole world, which is this hotel called The Breakers in Palm Beach, which is just it is so lovely and relaxing and the food is so good. And like, it's just a great place to be fat and happy, which is what I plan to do. So in real life, I leave tomorrow. I haven't gone yet. But then by the time this airs, I'll already be back. So we're just going for a Thursday to a Monday. And I cannot wait. I'm first of all excited to spend some quality time with these friends. But I'm also just excited for, I mean, you know that my peak my peak vacation mode is at a pool overlooking a beach. So I'm very excited for that. I'm excited for the food. I'm excited.
1: Oh, that sounds so nice. You know, I've never been to the Breakers or to Palm Beach. I really want to go at some point. I
0: didn't know that you've never been to Palm
1: Beach. Yeah, never been.
0: Interesting. We'll have to plan a trip. We should go sometime when Katie is in residence and we can go visit Katie Torino.
1: That would be so fun. What's your low?
0: My low is... Oh, I have, have this low too. <laughs> yeah, we've both been having this problem. So my laptop has decided that it would prefer to live its life as a desktop and the battery just like really shit the bed. So I had to take my computer in. I took it last week and they run the ran the diagnostics and they were like, "Okay, the only thing wrong with it is the battery. And it's it wasn't that expensive. So the battery was like one hundred and thirty dollars to replace. So I was like, oh, that's, you know, instead of buying a whole new computer, I could probably get another year out of it if I just replace the battery. So they said it's three days to get your computer back, but it should only be one day. And it ended up being like three and a half days without a computer, which on the one hand, in the context of this this episode and in this interview, taking a break from my computer and like having the flexibility to my work schedule to be able to do that is great. But in practice, I was so neurotic not having a computer. It was like driving me crazy. So I didn't have a computer from Friday through uh, Monday morning and...
1: For some reason, I thought you also had a desktop because I would be okay. I don't. Have a I don't have a desktop. Oh. It's my only computer. So
0: I have my yeah. phone. I'm not disconnected by any stretch. But yeah,
1: but Not having writing a laptop. And working on your book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I haven't been doing much of that lately, but I'm, I'm taking... I haven't written since before we went to Old Bosch. I'm getting back on the saddle. Yeah. When, when I come back from the breakers. But anyway. Yeah. Not having a computer. I mean, it also makes me realize how how attached I am to technology the, like the feeling that you feel when you're like oh my god I can't survive without this you're like oh that's a problem
1: oh yeah I, I wouldn't be able to survive without it I have a desktop and a laptop so I'd be okay but well I have two two desktops because the computer has the laptop has to be plugged in at all times yeah
0: well the good news is, is it seemed to have worked
1: good good because I was prepared to go buy another one I mean hopefully mine has a, the same problem as yours
0: yeah what is your low
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I have strep throat yesterday my boyfriend texted me because he had had like a little bit of a sore throat while I was out there so he got a COVID test and a strep test and the strep test was positive positive. and I was like well I'm fine like I don't feel sick at all and this morning I woke up with like a really sore throat and super swollen glands and um, oh. went to the doctor, got the test, couple tests, negative for COVID, positive for strep. So, I mean, the good news is it's not COVID um, and I have medicine and I know I've had strep before, so I know I'll be better in like... A day or two with um, amoxicillin But it just sucks Like we were just interviewing Anne, And I will tell you I'm not sure if I was like nervous about the interview Or if this is just part of the course of being sick I have sweat through my entire t-shirt It's I am I am very very moist right now So after this, I'm gonna lay down and just like maybe change your shirt too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna maybe yeah, I'm gonna change my clothes and take it maybe take a shower or a bath and just chill for the rest of the night. That sounds good. But yeah, that's my low. But before we talk to Anne, we want to take a little ad break. You guys know how much we love our night pillows. These are probably the most comfortable pillows in the world, and they are such a game changer when it comes to sleep. But the brand just launched some really big news. The pillow is now available in seven beautiful colors and two memory foam options.
0: So maybe you don't realize why this is a big deal. But until it's a big deal, it's a big deal. Until last month, you could only purchase the night pillow in black. And for many people, including me, that really doesn't go with their bedroom vibe or aesthetic. So after six years, Night is introducing seven beautiful colors and the option to choose a memory foam based on your sleeping habits.
1: So this is so exciting because even with the white pillowcase on mine, it just always looks a little bit gray. Yeah, the so black my system through. Yeah, so my system's just been to put my duvet cover over it and then two like conventional pillows over that and. It's hidden, but now you can just let your night pillow shine because it will go with your with your bedroom decor. But let's start with the colors. So you can now select a pillow in white, gunmetal, navy, sky blue, blush, champagne, and of course, black.
0: And let's talk about the memory foam options. So the original traditional foam is oxygenated, which means it recovers quickly to support literally every sleep position. And if you're a tried and true side or back sleeper or just in general like a lower profile pillow, the scoop memory foam pillow is for you. So one side is traditional and then one side has a scoop for your head for that lower profile so you get the best of both worlds. So you can get the original, which both sides are normal and then you can get the scoop which has like a divot for your head for more comfortable supportive sleep if you're a side or back sleeper.
1: Yes and we usually spend more time talking about the pillowcase. The night pillow also comes with their signature tri-silk pillowcase and this pillowcase is made of couture grade luxurious mulberry silk and the silk has huge beauty and health benefits. So it fights breakouts, it hydrates your skin and hair, it increases beauty benefits and I guess the thing that you need to know about silk is that it's anti-absorbent. This is something I didn't know until we started working with them. But because it's anti-absorbent, it's not going to absorb your skin creams. So all of those pricey skincare creams will stay on your face and not your pillow.
0: So if it has been holding you back from buying the night pillow that they only had the black option, now is the time I think you're going to love it. So the new colors are such a game changer. And of course, remember to use the code NIGHTBOP for 20% off sitewide at DiscoverNight.com. Into the interview. So we are so excited today to be joined by Anne Helen Peterson, who has written four books, including Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, and most recently, Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home, which is coming out in December. And she also writes the newsletter Culture Study, which I am a huge fan of, and we could not be more
1: excited to have her here with us today. Welcome, Anne. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're both huge fans of your newsletter. We just love everything you write. Well, it's been an exciting morning.
2: I got to put up a good newsletter this morning, and that always feels good.
0: I feel like throughout the pandemic, and even before, but more so during the pandemic, every time you send out a newsletter, I find myself just vigorously nodding like a weirdo to myself. And I'm like, yes, yes. Like you just have such a way of articulating the things I'm feeling in such like a pulse, either that or like we are very similar and like kindred spirits in some way, because I feel, I always feel like you are so on the nose with your newsletters. Well, I think that this goes back to the fact that I
2: am like, I process through writing this has always been the case. Like when I was a little kid, I, I wasn't a journaler, but I was a, a an avid letter writer. I love to write letters. And I think that like that, and then also writing letters and then very like stylized emails when I grew a little bit older. I'm dating myself as an old millennial here, but uh, that that always was the way that I processed things that were happening. And so now I I still use writing as a way to get my head around like some sort of very like in concrete feeling that I'm having so sometimes my partner will be like I noticed that you were upset and like you were I asked what was wrong and you're like nothing nothing's wrong right and then like a newsletter comes out three hours later he's like oh that was what was wrong
1: I relate to that so deeply, so deeply. I feel like people are like, "Oh, I didn't realize that you were having a hard time." But then I went to your blog and read that really personal post you put out, and I'm like, "Yeah, I just didn't want to talk about it." <laughs> yeah. People can
2: have different ways of wanting to process stuff. Like some people are such external processors, like really want to be in conversation. And I want to be in conversation, but I want to have like the mediated, you know, the remove of the page there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get into talking about some of the topics you've been writing about, can you give us the highlight reel of your career from college until now, just so people can kind of catch up to who you are if they're not already familiar with you?
2: Yeah. Uh, I have such a weird path. I mean, everyone has a weird path. So I, I guess it's not weird that it's it's normal that I've gone all over the place. But I grew up in a small town in North Idaho. Uh, I went to a small liberal arts college and that was, you know, one of those places where there's 1200 students and it feels like camp. And I wanted to continue that forever and was like, how can I continue to think about the things that I want to think about forever? Oh, grad school. (laughs) Uh, But before I went to grad school, I worked as a nanny in Seattle. This is the early 2000s. I wasn't a live-in nanny, but I was a a full-time nanny and I, it was for infants and then for two-year-olds and that I think is really instructive on uh, in ways that like even my academic training is not instructive because it has uh, really influenced a lot of the ways that I think about caregiving and understanding caregiving and and even in some ways my own reticence towards having my own kids because I had that very early and very real introduction to what working motherhood, working upper middle class motherhood looked like. Um, And then I went to grad school uh, for film studies, media studies. When I was there, I realized that I was really, really interested in the history of celebrity. I had never really understood my gravitational pull towards People Magazine, but uh, academic theory and thought really gave word and shape to thinking through why stars matter and why celebrities matter. And I wrote my dissertation on the industrial history of celebrity gossip. So I like literally have a PhD in celebrity gossip. That is so cool. <laughs> That's just really cool. <laughs> and then I was a professor for a little while, but the, um, avenues for, for tenure track employment and academia were, you know, closing in. And I had started writing on the internet when I was a grad student, I had a, a WordPress blog called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style, which is actually still the name of the Facebook page that I operate today. And That prepared me to kind of translate some of my my larger academic ideas to a more popular audience. And that transitioned into writing for this interesting like handful of websites that popped up post-recession that were pretty bare bones and paying people basically nothing. But because they weren't paying people anything, it actually allowed people with non-traditional journalistic or writing backgrounds to get published in them. It's something that we can talk about more if we want to, but that's how I started writing for this site called The Hairpin. And I wrote about celebrity gossip and and the history of stars and specifically old scandals. And like it was just revelatory to have people normal people be like, oh, this is so interesting. Like Ingrid Bergman, it's so interesting. I had no idea I was interested in Ingrid Bergman's scandals from 1946 and 47. And that eventually led to a full-time job at BuzzFeed where I learned how to report. You know, I had no journalistic experience before that. And I worked there for six years. During that time, I convinced them to let me move to Montana to essentially like cover from a place that wasn't the coast and then last summer, after writing a newsletter for free just on my own time for I don't know four years, I made the switch full time to, to write for Substack, um, and so that is my my full time gig. And I still write books on the side.
0: I love people That's- with weird career paths. I feel like weird pe- weird career paths are the most interesting. Make the most interesting. Right. People. Well, and it's
2: also I think like increasingly typical of you know, young Gen Xers, Millennials, like there's no such thing as a, a straight career path anymore.
1: Yeah. We always say that. I feel like Becca said this one. She was like, every in- interesting person I know has had like a career where they're like up and down and here and there and like taking steps backward to take a step forward. So um, I um, I really liked hearing about your career path and what kind of brought you to where you are today. But today we want to talk about burnout. Um This is a big thing. I think that something that our listeners are really interested, something that Becca and I will talk a lot about to each other. But um, before we get into it, we kind of wanted to know if you had a personal definition for what burnout is as opposed to ordinary stress or even depression.
2: Yeah, this is a really hard one. And I think that the way that we talk about burnout really varies a little bit by where you are located and what generation you are. I think that the way that I'm using it specifically to talk about the variety of burnout that afflicts millennials mostly, but also afflicts people who aren't millennials, but I think is like particularly concentrated in the millennial generation, is that feeling of like you hit the wall, you're like, I'm so exhausted, I cannot keep going. There's no way for you to stop, right? So you hit the wall, you scale the wall, and then you just keep going. It's not like there is any opportunity to cease doing the things that you're doing. It's just that you keep doing them more and more poorly, <laughs> um, and and with less and less of a, a, a feeling of happiness or vivacity. Like any of the things that like make you feel like you're living your life in a in a way that feels meaningful. And I think that there's an important delineation between the way that say the world health organization defines burnout, which is purely occupational. So specifically in people's jobs and a lot of people have burnout that is specific to their jobs, but the way that I think of it is it's, it's much more to do with entire lifestyles, right? So it has to do with the way that you feel about your work in particular, but also the way that you feel about like, parenting and caregiving and your social life and the fact that like the absence of hobbies right because in part of of your relationship to work and I also see it very much as like not a personal affliction like it is it is a symptom of living under capitalism right now and some people are able to insulate themselves better than others
0: so I think the first time you wrote about burnout was in your 2019 article for BuzzFeed, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And that went yeah. incredibly viral. Yeah. I had no idea that that was going to happen. Um, and that was the, one of the first times that I found myself just like nodding vigorously to one of your, your articles. But can you walk us through kind of what you posited in that piece? Like what was the seed kernel of, of the idea? Yeah. So I
2: couldn't get my errands done. I was so frustrated with myself because I'm very much a like make a list. As long as I put it on a list, I'll get it done. Like I, uh, <laughs> have always used that sort of motivation to get me through things. Um, and I'll also say that I'm not a person who has struggled with depression and like that, that is incredibly helpful that I, I have not had that to to struggle with in terms of like when I have felt tired, when I have felt demoralized that, clinical depression hasn't overlapped on top of that and I want to be mindful of that so I couldn't get my errands done and like some people were like maybe you're just depressed <laughs> I was like no I'm not depressed my editor was like maybe you're just burnt out and was using burnout in a way that to me was very unfamiliar because I thought that only war correspondents and like emergency room doctors got burnt out right like it was not something that I associated with writing for you know BuzzFeed on the internet. And so I my, put on my academic hat and was like, I'm going to research and figure out why I can't do my errands. And as I read more and more, it was like, oh, you're burnt out. <laughs> you know, like this is a symptom of burnout. The, the inability to um, to focus on these tasks that, that feel, that are small, but feel incredibly overwhelming. Um, you know, the one that I always point to is that I couldn't bring my shoes to the cobbler. And sometimes people are like, oh, what a like bourgeois thing to bring your shoes to the cobbler. I'm like, actually it's, you know, I was trying to not throw my shoes away and buy new shoes, right? Like I was trying to do something that was preserving my shoes. And all I wanted to do was just go on the internet and buy new shoes, right? I couldn't (laughs) figure out how to do the thing that would actually like keep the shoes that I had that wouldn't be wasteful. But there was also things like, you know, mailing packages, like all of those sorts of. Things.
1: Oh, that's me right now. I've got like 10 returns and it's so daunting. <laughs> well, and
2: here's the thing with returns. People are like, why can I not bring myself to go do returns? And anyone who's lived in New York, the, the the post office is a hellscape. There are so many things conspiring against you to do your returns. And also, you know, e-commerce is oriented so that you won't do your
0: returns, <laughs>
2: Right, They don't want you to return any of your shit. So sometimes I think we really put this burden on ourselves, like, oh, why can't I do this hard thing when the thing is hard on purpose? And so as I researched my inability to do my errands, it just turned into a much more expansive look at like, oh, why do I think that anything, including doing my errands, that takes away from my ability to work all the time why do I think of that thing as bad? And that was a revelation to me because, you know, in grad school we had joked about like, everything bad is good, everything good is bad. And that refers to the idea that like, when you are working all the time, when you were studying all the time, when you're reading all the time, when you're doing the thing, hustling all the time, you should feel good. And when you're doing the things that actually make you feel good, you know, in this case, it was like when we were hiking or when we were out at a bar or like, at a concert, that you're supposed to feel bad about that because it's taking away from the time that you're actually working. And that's a really messed up way to think about your life. And I think at the time we were like, oh, this is just grad school. But those ideas that you internalize, whether it's in grad school, whether it's in middle school or like at your first job out of college, those, those ideas stick with you and dictate how you conceive of work and leisure for the rest of your life.
0: And why did you find that millennials in particular are more afflicted with burnout than than past generations um, or not able to like or it's a more constant state that it's not like a fleeting state of like, yes, I feel burnt out and then I fix it. I think some
2: of it we inherited from or internalized from boomer parents who also had like a beginning stages of burnout in terms of. They were the first generation that really had to grapple with the decline of this like golden age of the American economy. There was a 20, 25 year span where like the economy was really good and everything was pretty solid for specifically middle class people, like, or so many more people were able to join the middle class and especially white people were able to join the middle class and then grappling with the fact that that was like going away Boomers first started to figure out strategies to deal with that, and then a lot of those strategies trickled down to their millennial kids. It also has to do with just like the overlapping catastrophes that millennials were grappling with. So I am an elder millennial or like a peak millennial. I don't like uh,
1: I don't like the phrase geriatric millennial. <laughs> I like elder
2: <laughs> or peak much better.
1: I think that we're both elder millennials as well, so you're in good company. <laughs> so, you know, when I entered
2: the workforce in 2003, when I graduated from college, it was still reeling from the dot-com bubble burst. This is especially the case in Seattle, and it was really difficult to find a job. That's part of how I ended up as an nanny, and Then from there, going into grad school and having the financial crisis hit and then having all of this intersect as well with the development of digital technologies and the rising cost of college, which means more and more student debt. Like It creates this environment of both financial precarity because millennials have not had the chances, the opportunity to accumulate wealth in the way that previous generations have. And by wealth, I mean like even a modicum of stability or the ability to buy a house when you're at a younger age that then provides this foundation of stability moving forward. And then like just the feeling that the other shoe is always going to drop just constantly. You know, like when the pandemic hit, I was like, of course, of course, right? Like just when things started to feel stable, they destabilize once again.
0: Well, the pandemic yeah. is really interesting to me because I have experienced professional burnout before. So Grace and I met because we both worked at a startup together. And I feel like burnout is a huge part of startup culture where yep. you're knowingly working with too few people, Um, who are trying to do too many things, which is just not achievable. And (laughs) the expectation is that at some point you will burn out. And so I've experienced that type of burnout before. And it makes sense because I'm the main character in that burnout. Like I get Mm it. Versus I feel Mm -hmm. like the pandemic was really interesting because I felt a level of burnout that I was on the sidelines for. So like I was very Mm -hmm. lucky in that I didn't Ever have COVID, and I wasn't caring. I don't have children. So I wasn't caring for children. And it was just this kind of like malaise of watching the news and feeling a complete and utter burnout, even though outside of not being able to leave my house, like things were pretty much the same for me. And I worked from home beforehand. So it wasn't like it was a huge lifestyle shift. So what have you seen in terms of how the pandemic created I don't know if it's new burnout or different burnout or, like, burnt us out more. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's just, like, sustained and joint. (laughs) You know, like,
2: all of the, the types of burnout that were happening before just were inflamed, accelerated, compounded, and then, like, built on other people's burnout as well, right? So when someone is burnt out, they're actually creating more work for other people, right? And I don't mean that in a way to guilt anyone. It's just that, like, when you're burnt out, you do worse work. You are shorter with people. You are not a good support for other people in your life, um, whether that's in your job, whether that's as a caregiver, whether that's for your friends. And so it just makes it harder for everyone else. Um, So, like, I just in the example of in a home, if your partner is burnt out, then and if you were burnt out, you're both just like burnt out together and like exacerbating each other's burnout. Like you can't be, you can't be good or supportive or, or even provide an example of like a different way of being <laughs> for one another. And I think that the other real thing with the pandemic is that, you know, you were talking about at a startup, you knew like, oh, I was going to flame out at some point. Mm-hmm. And either you quit your job or people take in, depending on their job, take like sabbaticals or leaves of absence or whatever it is. And also usually they're, they're pretty well compensated. Um, there's no end point for this, right? There's no reprieve. And that I think makes it feel like, well, this is just my life now. And that's a really, really hard reality to grapple with. And I also think like this, this summer has been a real fuck in terms of people thinking that things were getting better and thinking that the stress uh, was was going to go down, and especially for parents who are having to reconsider all of the risks. Like, they're just like, I can't do this again. I can't do it. I'm done. And I can't deal with the schools opening and closing constantly. Like, a lot of moms that I know who managed to make it through the last 18 months are now staring down this school year and are like, I can't believe that I didn't quit the last 18 months, but. I think I'm going to have to quit now, but can't deal with it anymore, doing all of those jobs. So I I definitely think a lot of it has to do with that. There was no catharsis. There was Mm -hmm. no end. Like there were a couple of weeks in June where there were reports in the New York Times of people like dancing in the street. I feel like that was the short catharsis that we
1: had. And now it's all back, right? Yeah. So we're bouncing around in the interview, but like, I want to know, like, what do you do? First of all, I loved, you said in another podcast, I think Becca and I both loved this point where you said, you know, you're burnt out when you can't read fiction at night because I felt like that so much during the pandemic. I think I was curious if you had any other kind of like trigger points or things that you observe in yourself where you're like, oh, I know I need to like step back because I'm burnt out.
2: I think, I mean, the reading is a real one for me. Not being able or really resisting leaving my phone or leaving screens for any given amount of time. You know, if I find myself when I'm leaving to go on a walk with my dogs being like, oh, let me bring my phone just so I can like keep checking in, right? That is a, a, (laughs) I don't mean this derisively, but like it is a weak-willed behavior (laughs) because it's really hard to, to muster the will to be stronger than the pull of your phone. It takes energy. And when you're burnt out, you don't have that energy.
1: Oh yeah, our phones are, they're addictive. Like, <laughs> And
2: so when you are burnt out and exhausted, like you give into those, those impulses that you don't want for yourself. Like I'm not trying to say that it makes you a bad person if you're constantly checking your email. It's just to me an in- indication that I'm exhausted.
1: Yeah. I think we wanna also talk about your book because you took that article you wrote and you expanded it into a book. And we're both really curious about, the, um, the research that went into that book.
2: Yeah. I love the opportunity to turn any idea into an article and any article into something bigger. Than an article. <laughs> and I think that, I think that that really goes back to my academic roots that I'm like, Oh, there's always like, there's the kernel of an idea and you can go horizontally to think like, okay, how is this affecting all different sorts of people right now? And then you can also go vertically in terms of thinking, where does this idea come from and where is this leading? And so just having the opportunity to really think through, how did we get to this point of like, how did jobs get like this? That was not something that I had thought in depth about. And I got the chance to do so much reading to think about how we started to rearrange companies and work in the way that we did and and what was going on with the economy and with regulation that facilitated that. And then also what was going on with parenting, because, you know, parenting it's just it's a weird thing with when you think about burnout or you think about the way that we are because we are all the result of our parenting our parents' parenting practices for better or for worse and then even if we are not parents ourselves we like swim in the stew of parenting norms you know parents are the status quo and they determine like the priorities of a society. So how parents are acting at a given moment is really changing how we think about so many things. So that to me was a a challenging but really rewarding way to think about this sort of thing.
1: Did any single conversation stand out to you when you were doing these interviews just as like the most illuminating or just something that was really interesting to you?
2: Well, the book that I really loved or, like, that I always just come back to again. I mean, there's a lot of books, and I, I particularly love this one by this guy named Lewis Highland called Temp, which just like, if you've ever been part of a subcontractor or worked for a company that employs subcontractors and, and are like, huh, this is interesting. The subcontractor has a subcontractor. Why is this like this? Like, how do we? Think this is okay, um, or why it came to be like that book just really explains everything. And then I love, love, love this book called All the Rage, which is about women and labor in the home and uh motherhood, but not not just exclusively for for motherhood, it's also just about like domestic labor and that sort of thing. And it's by a woman who's a psychologist named Darcy Lockman, but she just <laughs> so good at thinking through, like looking at these hard numbers of like, oh, how is it that like women are doing even more housework, even more domestic work than they were when we think of like the height of housewives, right? Like 20, 30 years ago, like we are all doing more work in the home than our grandparents were. That is wild to me, right? And so much of that. That's crazy. I know. And so much of that has to do with the fact that like our standards of what parenting should look like, right? So, Like the number of hours that are expected in direct supervision for parenting, for good parenting. And then also the amount of like labor that is expected for being like a good cook or a good housekeeper, like all of these things that specifically women are doing in addition to the labor that they are paid for outside of the home or, you know, with COVID, the labor that they are doing from working from home as well. <laughs>
0: All right, let's take another quick ad break. So I've worked from home for a few years now, but over the past year, I've learned a lot about what I need to be successful working from home. And the number one thing is being comfortable. And that most definitely includes my bra, which is why I'm obsessed with Harper Wilde, who makes some of my favorite comfy bras. So Harper Wilde makes bras that put comfort first. The bra that I wear the most from them is called the base bra. And it's a lightly lined everyday bra that comes in a range of nude shades that won't show through even the thinnest t-shirt. And two of my favorite things about this bra, other than the comfort, of course, is first that it has straps that adjust in the front, which is so smart. I don't understand why all bras don't do this. And it has a hook and eye closure in the back so you can clip the straps together and make it a racer back. So it's a two-in-one. You get a regular bra or a racer back, which makes it so ideal for when you travel. Their other signature bra is the Bliss, which is a bralette that provides lift while feeling like second skin. And I always thought my boobs were too big to get in on the bralette trend, but this bra has definitely debunked that theory. With Harper Wilde, you can always count on buttery fabrics, thoughtful construction, and all-day comfort. Plus, with their interactive fit quiz, beautifully priced bundles, and free returns, they've made bra shopping painless. And part of their proceeds provide mentorship for girls through their partnership with Girls Inc. Stay in your comfort zone. Go to harperwild.com BOP so you can get 20% off your first purchase, because the only thing better than a comfortable bra is getting a discount just for being a bad on paper listener. That's 20% off at harperwild.com slash B O P. And wild is spelled W I L D E. Harperwild.com slash B O P. Back to the interview. In your research, did you find that women were more susceptible to burnout than men? Or is it. Yeah. Yes.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. A lot of men are really burned out, and I and I have a lot of sympathy for them. And I like, you know, the pe- those people have read my book, but like, the parenting <laughs> chapter doesn't have a single interview with a dad <laughs> because none of them were like, there were no dad. Like, at all these calls for research, I was like, tell me about your parenting burnout. Not a single dad responded. And part of that is just women's willingness to share experiences with people on the internet like that is something that is conditioned um and then part of that too is the fact that i think that it's the expectations are different right the normalized expectations of motherhood are different
0: well i saw a meme the other day that i laughed really hard at that was just like has any man in the history of life ever been called a working dad and it's like yeah. no, because the expectation is that like, of course, the dad is is going to work. Versus you say a working mother, <laughs> as if like the expectation is that like you're going yeah. above and beyond by being in the workplace. And it's like,
1: huh. that's great. Like the boy boss. There was a meme about yes, that there's too. There's no it's such like- thing as the boy boss. Yes. <laughs>
2: Like, can you imagine?
0: They're just boss baby. Like, boss. (laughs) The closer you get to a boy boss, can you imagine just going up to Jeff Bezos and being like, "What a boy (laughs) boss!" (laughs) Oh my god, I can't.
2: Uh, although, like, the behavior of so many, like, founders is
0: definitely boy boss behavior. <laughs> it totally is. I, I can yes, innately understand what a boy boss would be. I've just never heard anyone called that. I mean, it's very infantilizing to call somebody a girl boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um. Well, but I'm curious, in addition to the role that parenting and, and gender plays in it, it also feels like you talked about social media as a symptom in terms of like just that attachment to your phone but what role does social media play in burnout that like we just have so much more access to people to compare ourselves to yeah it's
2: so interesting right because I think most people never I'm never like oh I'm falling short of this very real depiction of someone else's life Right. Like I'm smart enough to know that social media is not an accurate depiction of someone else's life. But there are so many triggers. Right. Like in every single sort of thing in terms of like, look how their home is, like, look how they are tagging their life. Like they are better at filters than I am. Like the way that they are depicting their life is superior to how I am depicting my life. Right. So it's like they are better at the game than I am at the game. And so I don't think that it's usually, how can I become a better person? It's more, how can I become better at broadcasting that I am a better person or a more balanced person, a person that has leisure, a person that's a great, like, messy parent, you know, all those different things.
0: And I mean, this is obviously the, I think, well, I I think it is a somewhat broad experience, but it's a more niche experience than the norm of like then sharing your life online and living your life online. If you have any sort of following then brings all sorts of negative feedback, whether it's warranted or not. So it's another input to how you're living your life, what you're doing, et cetera. So, you know, I think like even in some ways, like I know a lot of mom friends who get unsolicited feedback from just other moms on the internet about their choices. And it's like, that's just another input that it's like, I'm not living up to. Right, right. And that
2: everything that you do is up for debate in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And I think this is especially true of women. The idea that, like, <laughs> anything that you post is you asking for feedback, right? It's just like, it's like a soft, yeah, or it's never a firm declaration. It's always, is this okay? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I feel like it all goes back to this idea of like distinguishing yourself by doing more, which is something you talked about in another interview which I found fascinating because my sister works in academia and I work in digital media and I I can see why she's burnt out. She's this professor, you know, grading papers and speaking to thousands of people and doing all the things she does and then I'm just like writing articles for my blog and things. So sometimes I feel like I don't I'm not like What's the word it's again? The, the fever is not great. like you <laughs> Like you don't deserve to be burnt out. Yes. Like I don't deserve to be burnt out. Oh, totally. Yes. And people, this is so bad. And it's
2: like, I, I think sometimes it's a symptom too of like how comparison teach like tells tells us that we have to be grateful for what we have. Right. You're like, oh, well, I'm not a single mom struggling to put dinner on the table. So I guess this isn't burnout. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not true. Like it's not the burnout olympics. You can really really understand and like feel incredible sympathy or empathy for that mom and still also be like and also what I what I am dealing with sex too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: guess I'm maybe this is very wishful thinking, but in your research and talking to so many people as you wrote your book, were there certain groups of people or people who had certain habits that were like more resistant to burnout? Like I'm thinking like blue zones for like people with a long lifespan. And I feel like your answer is just to be like the idle rich who have no real concerns. But like, (laughs) were there regular people who were more resistant or like were doing things to be less burnt out? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I
2: think people who have disarticulated people who have disarticulated their identity from their job are less inclined to to burnout and to demoralization that accompanies burnout because to them, stopping working or putting boundaries around work, like, that's not a moral failure.
0: We talk a lot yeah. about it. live to work people versus work to live people. Yep. And totally. I wish that I was more of a work-to-live person where you're just collecting your paycheck and then you're you're pursuing hobbies and passions and whatever outside of work. Um, but I have not been able to dissociate my identity from work. Well, it's really, really hard. We've been told since we
2: were very young that if you do what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. And really, it's that you'll work every day for the rest of your life, right? And that ideology, though, has been passed down and you know, it's the, the, the water that we're swimming in. And so when you decide I don't want to swim in that water anymore, like every part of your body is like, no, it's comfortable here. Or comfortable is the wrong word. Like at least it's familiar here. Mm-hmm. This is what I know. And so to really reorient yourself, I mean, and like, I, I am not, I still, my identity is very much wrapped up in in what I do and that's really hard to shift i i'm much better at not taking things as personally and not being as like invested in twitter drama or like new york media drama which is something like that is just deeply toxic to be invested in in any capacity at any stage in your career but at the same time i still am in a profession where my identity like my thoughts the the, the first person you know like saying starting sentences with i like
0: is how I earn money right I can't angle that yeah I guess short of dissociating my identity with my work like have you come across any strategies that one can undertake on the individual level to improve one's level of burnout obviously knowing that so much of this is systemic in terms of like capitalism and work how workplaces work but like what can I do
2: yeah, I think this is really important, especially as we're continuing like the remote work conversation, because I think the the immediate reaction to remote work was like people just started working all the time, in part to evidence that they were working because managers didn't know how to know that workers were working or we felt like, oh, how do I prove that I'm working if Someone's not watching me in the office. I have to, like, respond to emails all the time.
0: <laughs> it also felt like at the beginning of the pandemic, like, there were so many layoffs that it was like, I have to prove yeah. my prove my value. Yeah.
2: Totally. And that, like, stabilized with it within a couple of months, but that was, a, like, a huge phase, initial phase of the pandemic that I think set standards of behavior that are still there <laughs> in yeah. really toxic ways. And then also especially like if you think back to last winter, there was nothing else to do, right? It was like, oh, I guess I'll finish my work and, and move across my living space to watch TV. Like- And I've
0: run out of I TV think, too. So like- yeah.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So there wasn't a lot of other things drawing you away from work. I think that changed a little bit this summer. But we have bad work habits right now a lot of people have bad work habits and are also like oh, like i just i miss the boundaries or the bumpers around work like i miss my commute i miss being able to stop for lunch you can reinstate all of those things in your life you can reinstate that bumper of a commute by going on a walk right or even just by like going into a corner of your house and meditating or just like staring into space and listening to a podcast with your eyes closed. Like there are so many ways to approximate a commute that don't involve fossil fuels, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, So you can create those spaces, but you have to be really mindful about them and creating them. And the other thing too, is there are ways to take advantage of the flexibility that working from home Or remote work or flex work, which some people are doing right now, um, or even just like moderately more flexible work in terms of, oh, like right now it's a beautiful day outside. Like I'm going to get off taping this and I'm going to go garden for an hour, right? And I can do that because I don't have to work a nine to five. And there are the, and that doesn't mean like there's a difference between I'm going to slack off, and I'm just going to like take a nap every day from eleven to four, which is what I think managers think workers do at home. Like, which is just not true. And oh, what if I? You know, I like working when I first wake up, right? Like, I like working at seven thirty. So, what if I work from seven thirty till noon, and then I go on my run from noon to one, and I have a leisurely lunch while reading a fiction book, and then I come back to my computer, right? Like there are ways to create these spaces in our days that are really resistant to work and also help break up that feeling of like every day being one long work slog. But again, you have to be really intentional about them and also have conversations with managers about how to implement them and not feel bad about them. Because that's the big thing is, like, oftentimes people will be like, I know my manager wouldn't care, but, like, I just feel bad about it, right? But if you can have a, a conversation where a manager says explicitly, yeah, it's totally fine for you to go take a walk at 1 p.m., then you're going to, it's going to normalize quicker.
0: And what if you are a manager? What are things you can do for your team? If not, you know, you can't obviously change company culture at at the macro level, but, like, what can you do for your team to help prevent burnout?
2: I think the big thing is that you have to model this sort of behavior that you want your reports to have, right? So if you want to say to your report, it's okay that you take a walk at 1 p.m. Well, maybe you should take a walk at 1 p.m. too. Not everyone has to be doing the same sort of thing, but if you show that it's okay to break up your day in this way and that the world doesn't collapse because it doesn't, um, then I think that that it goes such a long way in terms of normalizing behaviors and affirming behaviors. Also, I think the huge one is like you have to get away from subconsciously or consciously rewarding burnout behaviors. So a lot of times a, a manager might talk about work balance, work-life balance, but then praise someone who, you know, is putting in the time to like an emailing at 9 PM and slacking it at, at 4 a.m. and like demonstrating overwork behaviors that person gets praised for that sort of work instead you have to be like this isn't okay you know this isn't the sort of strategy like maybe your best work is done at 4 a.m. you don't need to be basically live action role playing that for the rest of the team to know that you're working at 4 a.m.
0: yeah oh I've I've been there we had a boss who
1: really liked the 11 o'clock email and she really liked (sighs) to be responded to at 11 p.m. Oh, I I had a boss who thought that end of day was midnight. That was my favorite one. (laughs) Just (laughs) Sending something at like nine or 10 and being like, I need this by end of day.
2: And I think that like sometimes mistake, sometimes people mistake this idea of like, oh, they just want to work less. But the thing is, is that oftentimes if you're doing less work and you're also creating those spaces for recovery, for rejuvenation within the work, you do better work, Right your work is more accurate, it's more creative, it's more clear. Um, your communication style is less jumbled. You know, it'd be like, you know, like you're having like struggling because you your brain is sick with, with like a disease with strep. It's like, has, it has muddle brain. That's all the time when you're burnt out. Yeah, when you're burnt out, you have muddle brain all the time. <laughs> yes. Your workers have strep all the time, or would you rather have them like have some space where they can recover from strep? Yeah. Within every day so that they can continue to be clear-brained.
1: Setting a bad example, doing this recording while sick. She's doing it for me because I'm going on vacation tomorrow. (laughs) I want to be (laughs) offline. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to take a long nap after this and I've got a great book. So don't, don't worry.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. So we're going to wind down, but before we do, we have, or as we do, we have some, some more personal questions for you that we wanted to, to get your take on. So Back to that comment that you made about one of the ways, you know, you're burnt out is that you don't have the bandwidth for fiction. Hopefully you're not so burnt out that you haven't been reading, but we host a monthly book club and everyone's always looking for reading recs. So I'm curious, what is the best fiction that you've read this year?
2: Oh, it's Louise Erdrich's uh, The Night Watchman. Oh, okay. I haven't read that yet. Yeah, it won the Pulitzer and I read it before it won the Pulitzer, uh, but it, she's one of my favorite living authors and... I read everything that she writes, but I had saved this one. Like I had it for, I think nine months before I finally found the wherewithal amidst pandemic burnout to to pull it out and, and read it. And it is just, it is an incredible, incredibly warm hearted and exquisite story. And it's also a story that is about the history of attempts to wipe out the indigenous population in the very recent history of the United States. So it takes place in the Dakotas and in Minnesota. um, And it's just wonderful. I cannot recommend it enough.
1: I just wrote that down. Yeah, I saw Grace making a note there. What about nonfiction? I always take notes during our interviews. (laughs) Anything on the nonfiction front? Yes, I am obsessed with this book called The Season by
2: Kristen Richardson. And it is about the history of debutantes.
1: Ooh, I
2: am not a person who was like super invested in debutantes. I was not a Deb. Like I resisted the small town version of debutante culture that we had in Idaho called Junior Miss, but she does just an incredible job of chasing how debutante culture was really a reaction to the quote unquote problem of daughters uh, that resulted after the reformation in Europe when like the surplus of daughters couldn't go into convents anymore. So they're like, what are we going to do with all these unmarried daughters? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and and how do we reproduce our class status as well? And also, how do we re- reproduce hierarchies of race and that sort of thing? So she goes deep into that history, but then also really looks at the way that it's manifested and continues to manifest today, both in like the the repopularization of debutantes amongst. Um, new money global new money but then also how like how it still works in new orleans and still works in like a very kind of white supremacist way in, in a lot of places and then also the rise of black debutante balls and what was going on there it's just she it's it's a popular history that is written in such a gripping style like i could not put it down
1: that sounds fascinating I am ordering that immediately. I just moved to the South after 15 years in New York and being raised in New England. So I feel like there's just such a culture shock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think this will help me understand.
0: <laughs> so we didn't get any time to talk about it. I could have talked to you for two hours. But another big piece of your work is your work on celebrities. And I have to know, is there like a pop culture story or an individual celebrity that you're currently obsessed with?
2: Well, you know, I'm obsessed with the Peloton celebrities. Um because I and I've written a lot about them. I am also obsessed with the Baylor twins, who are these two influencer twins who are second generation influencers. Yeah, so their mom was kind of an OG influencer with cute hair cute hairstyles for girls. And she used her kids, who were then like one and two-year-olds, like to model the hairstyles. And then the kids became influencers and they went to Baylor together. They're LDS, but they went to Baylor because it was like matched in their lifestyle. And one of them just got engaged like at age 21. And so now there's like spinster twin and engaged twin. Stop it. I have got to read up on them. I'm obsessed with them. They got COVID last year. Like they had a paid partnership with Baylor. Like- Influencers having
1: paid partnerships with colleges—so
2: much going on.
1: I also just wonder so much about what happens to influ—I'm I'm an influencer, but I don't have kids or plan to have them, which is one of the reasons I love your work. But that's a whole sidebar. I wonder constantly what's going to happen to all these influencer kids. Like that's yes. gonna, in 10, 20 years from now, that's gonna there's going to be so many books on it. And I hope you're one of the people who writes one. <laughs>
2: Well, and I think that there's two routes that people go. Either they reject it and are, like, totally screwed up by it, or they embrace it and are screwed yeah. by it in different ways. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, like, I, like what are the— they have a joint Instagram account. What is going to happen when one of them gets married? Like, it's are they going to break off and have their own Instagram accounts?
1: So interesting to me. It's like couples who share an email address. <laughs> I follow a couple of Instagram accounts where it's like two friends that share an account. Like there's Oh yeah. two fashion bloggers called somewhere lately and one's in Texas and one's in Connecticut, but sometimes I don't know who's who like on their stories. <laughs> yes. If they don't show their faces. <laughs> yes. Oh man. So l- the
0: last thing, first of all, everyone needs to go subscribe to Anne's newsletter Culture Study because it is one of my favorite reads, but my favorite thing to do when I when I get really into somebody new or I like find a new podcast or a new is so I like to dive into the archives. So can you recommend for us one article that you think people should start with and then one article that you think got overlooked and didn't get the readership it deserved that people should people should also read? <sighs>
2: this is covid brain like I don't remember was something published last year. Was it published two years ago? You it know could be published like anytime. I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, there's a piece that is still really popular that I think that brought a lot of people to the newsletter. This is before the newsletter was paid. That's called Is Everything an MLM? And it looks at like how various parts of life or various careers from yoga to academia prey on recruiting other people to also follow that career path, essentially. So even if you're not selling a product in and of itself, like you're still selling a lifestyle and, and omitting some of the the exploitative parts of, of that lifestyle. Um, and then something that I feel like didn't get as much audience as I think it deserved. Well, I did do, I did this amazing Q&A with this woman who from san antonio she's getting her phd in theology from yale and she's writing about like the intersection of christianity and fixer upper and chip and joanna Gaines and like settler colonialism and aesthetics and it's just this really fascinating look at like what's going on with shiplap and like the understanding of like that that sort of empire And, you know, the thing is when I do these Q&As, I just let people go. And like, if people are interested, they'll read for 6,000 words. And, you know, that's part of what gets people to subscribe to the newsletter because they're like, where else am I going to get a 6,000 letter Q&A with a PhD student (laughs) about like the aesthetics of shiplap? (laughs) Um, But it also just makes it so that sometimes that makes the audience not as wide as it would be so that's one that I would absolutely recommend
0: how do we find that one do you remember the title or what her name is or something we can search it by I would just I would just google culture study fixer
2: upper okay or culture study shiplap and it will come up for sure
0: we'll do the hard work and we'll we'll find the link and we'll put it in the show notes for everyone so they can find it great and you have been such a generous and phenomenally interesting guest and in the tradition of our podcast, you've earned what we call a Desperation Minute to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet, anything they can do for you. I want to hear about your your new book and when it's on sale. Tell us everything. My Desperation Minute is that you
2: can find me on Twitter at Anne Helen, find the newsletter, like that'll bring you to all the social stuff. But I'm currently working on a piece about what makes it harder to find stability specifically in the United States as a person who's single, right? And I'm not talking about like, I don't know, marriage stability, like I'm talking about economic stability. We are still oriented in this country towards being in a partnership, right? Having another person who will split those bills with you. So if you have any reading recommendations or if you wanna tell me a, a sneaky way that it's harder to be a single person, economically. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or you can email me. It's just my full name at Gmail.
0: Okay. And then if somebody wants to read more about burnout, your book is called Can't Even, and that's on sale now. And then you have a new book coming out in December. Remind me of the title. It's called Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working From Home. And it's co-written with my
1: partner, Charlie Warzel amazing. So definitely yeah. pre-order that as well. Thank you so much. It was really, really fun talking to you. This was really great. And I hope you feel better soon and have a good nap.
2: <laughs> also Thank a good you. vacation.
1: Thank you. All right, Grace,
0: let's get into some end matter here. I don't have an Instagram, but it looks like you do.
1: So over the weekend and DMing with my sister, I discovered a new kind of cat that I didn't know existed. It's not new, but it's new to me. The Instagram account is called At British Fluffs, British underscore F-L-U-F-F-S. I mean, obviously I know about British short hair cats, but there is a chocolate brown one. And my sister and I were just marveling over the fact that we did not realize that like a solid like silky brown cat existed. Like it looks like a chocolate bar. (laughs) It's so beautiful. I'm happy you're happy. I told my whole family, I'm like, I know I'm really hard to shop for, like, but, you know, for my 40th birthday, I wouldn't mind if you found this cat for me. Um, so we'll see if anyone gets me a cat, but I don't think anyone will, but I want this cat. It's so cute. That's a that's a high stakes gift. I mean, I guess you gave them the
0: green light, but like if somebody just got me an animal for my birthday, like, yeah, that would be cute. But like that, that would be a big uh, kind of an overstep. Yeah, I would love it. What about regular obsessions? Have you watched Lula Rich on Amazon yet? No, I've seen so much talk about it online. I didn't think that I really cared. But then at the same time, like, I didn't think that
1: I cared about Tiger King and look how wrong I was there. So do I need to watch it? Yeah, I think you do. It's just really interesting. You know, I know about MLMs and I I struggle because like, you know, for example, Beauty Counter, like I just love their products and I think they're doing good things with with the government and lobbying for like better standards and beauty so I kind of give them a um a little pass but this is disgusting like there are some crazy things that happen like I don't want to give it's not a spoiler but at one point the founders are like encouraging their top earners to have their husbands quit the, their jobs to like work on the business. And basically it was making the whole family just fully dependent on LuLaRoe. So they couldn't leave and they couldn't go anywhere. Oh my God. It was so interesting. And I think the part that was the most interesting to me is that the founders agreed to do this. Like, why would they agree? But it's, it's good. And it's only four episodes. Each one is like 40 minutes. Honestly, like last night, I was starting to feel a little under the weather and I watched the whole thing. So you could watch it in a night if you have that kind of work ethic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What about you?
0: So I have another Apple Watch one. So I said that one of my favorite parts of the watch is competing with people. So but the way the competition works is that you can only – compete with one person at a time. So you can't do a group one. So Rachel found this app that is called Challenges. And you download it on your phone. And then you can create a group competition. So right now we have one going and there's four of us in it. So there's like a leaderboard and also the competition is longer. So it's I didn't set it up. So I'm not exactly positive what the options are, but ours is 30 days. So I don't know. Like, I find this so motivating, and I like the idea of doing it with multiple people at once. So I'm very into this app. I'm also very upset because I am losing. Oh, Becca, come on. I know. You can't lose. I know. I would like to say that I'm only losing. I mean, first of all, our friend Lydia is like a Tasmanian devil. Like, she's always in motion. So I'm definitely going to lose to her. But Rachel cheated unintentionally. She put on an ab workout and then forgot to stop it the other day. And so she like logged 120 minutes of ab workout. So I would like to say that I'm only losing because she's cheating. But I mean, I might be losing in my own right when I go on vacation and just like sit my butt in a lounge chair for five days. Anyway, that's mine.
1: What about reading? Okay, so... I've been deep into both Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead and Helter Skelter, which is that true crime book. But I got to be honest, I kind of needed a break because both of them are like on the heavier side, like the Hel- Helter Skelter. There's so many characters like between the whole like Charles Manson gang and then all the victims and then all of the cops and detectives and lawyers. Um, and then Colson Whitehead's books are really good, but just it's like a, you know, when you're reading a, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, it's just not the same as like diving into like a, a silly murder book. So I took a break from those. To and read some silly started, murder books? I did. I Well, I started the Lisa Jewell book, but then last night I got two books that I had pre-ordered and they came in the same box, which was like a very exciting mail day. The first was White Smoke by Tiffany D. Jackson, who you and I both love. And the second was the New Leanne Moriarty. And I'm blanking. I'm having <laughs> strep throat brain. It's the newly Moriarty. I think it's like apples never fall. It has apples in the title. So I started with the Tiffany Jackson book and it is so good. It's like I, I can't tell where it's going. I think it might kind of go in the same direction as Ace of Spades. I'm, I'm not sure. Or it might go in the in the direction of like just pure like ghosts and horror I have no idea but I know that when we get off of this recording that's my plan for tonight is to probably finish it I read a 100 pages of it last night it's a quick read I love everything she writes I've read all of her books and I just love her like YA kind of because she writes like YA books but they're really dark
0: yeah okay
1: yeah how about you
0: So I finished Troubles in Paradise, which is the third book in Ellen Hildebrand's Winter in Paradise series. And I was so into this series. This is the one where the woman finds out that her husband was leading a double life in the Caribbean. And I will say the third book was the weakest in my opinion, but I was so into this series that there was no way I was not going to finish it. So I I finished that. I feel like a deep sense of accomplishment for finishing this series that I read all three books in like a week. Then I thought to myself, so prior to this year, I hadn't read any of Ellen Hildebrand's books because I thought that they were like not for me. I thought it was like mom fiction. Mom fiction meaning something that like somebody who was our mom's age would be reading. And I totally misjudged it. And you know, now she's one of my favorite authors. So I was like, what else have I misjudged? So the other one that came up was Mary Kay Andrews, who, and I never, I'd never read one of her books, and I was like, well, maybe you know, she's another really like popular beach fiction writer, and I was like, maybe I've also misjudged her. So I bought her book called The Newcomer, which came out this summer, and it had really good reviews on Goodreads, and I started reading it. in Grace, I tried really hard. I ended up DNFing it. It was, it was what I expected it to be. It was like. A predictable mystery. I didn't think the characters were as well developed as Ellen's. Like maybe this was just the wrong pick, and and I, but I think I sated the curiosity. Like I judged this one correctly. I got a lot of DMs when I when I put on Instagram that I was reading this. Some people said that they loved her. Some people said that they were not a fan. So you know she has her audience. It, it does seem like you know if you love her, you're in good company with about half the people who DM'd me. But um, this wasn't for me. So, I DNF'd it. I went like 270 pages before I DNF'd it, but I finally did last night. And I picked back up The Identicals by Ellen Hildebrand. I'm just on a spree and expect more while I'm on vacation. I read that one. This is, <laughs> I picked it up before we went to Olbash and I'd read like 30 pages. And for whatever reason, I was like, I've already started this one. I can't bring it with me. And I'd read 30 pages. I totally could have brought it with me. But anyway, I went back to that one. So,. I'm into it. It's about two twin sisters who are in their late 30s. One lives in Martha's Vineyard and one lives on Nantucket. Their father has just died. And so it like brings them back together after a long period of estrangement. So I'm into it. It's an Ellen. I feel like it's going to be good.
1: Yeah, it's very good. I read that one and I liked it. I'm excited.
0: And if none of those book recommendations felt quite right to you, we would also like to recommend our September book club pick we are reading The Magic of Found Objects by Maddie Dawson, who also wrote Matchmaking for Beginners, which is a bad on paper fan favorite. And uh, the book is about a woman named Franzi who is in her late 30s and lives in New York City. And after, you know, some amount of time doing the whole dating app thing, her and her male best friend decide to get married. And they they think that they're getting away with something. They have such a smart plan. They're going to like be happy together as partners and have kids and just like trick the whole system. But of course, as soon as they make this pact, she meets somebody who might be a real romantic match. And it's also told about her family and where she came from. Uh, so it's told in two timelines the current and then all through the years growing up, where she has this like very hippie, free spirited mom and a very hardworking, salt of the earth New England dad who is then remarried. Her mom and her stepmom have very different opinions on her plan to marry her best friend. So we'll be talking about that next week, the last Wednesday in September. And in the meantime, uh, you can join us in our Facebook group. Just search Bat on Paper on Facebook. You can also join us on
1: Instagram at Bat on Paper Podcast. I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I'm on Instagram at Grace Atwood. And my blog is thestripe.com. I post there every day. And we'll see you next week. Bye.